Our Enemies in Blue, Police and Power in America by Christian Williams. This is the second of two parts of Chapter 9 entitled Your Friendly Neighborhood Police State. Fixating on Broken Windows The theoretical justification for the sudden focus on minor offenses is what is known as the Broken Windows Doctrine. Though actually quite old, the Broken Windows idea owes its name and current popularity to an article by James Q. Wilson and George Kelling. They argue that if minor disorder is allowed to persist, it leads to both public fear and to serious crime, because it establishes the sense that the area is uncared for. Quote, we suggest that untended behavior also leads to the breakdown of community controls. A stable neighborhood of families who care for their homes, mind each other's children, and confidently frown on unwanted intruders can change in a few years or even a few months to an inhospitable and frightening jungle. A piece of property is abandoned, weeds grow up, a window is smashed, adults stop scolding rowdy children, the children emboldened become more rowdy. Families move out, unattached adults move in. Teenagers gather in front of the corner store. The merchant asks them to move, they refuse. Fights occur, litter accumulates, people start drinking in front of the grocery. In time, an inebriate slumps to the sidewalk and is allowed to sleep it off. Pedestrians are approached by panhandlers. Such an area is vulnerable to criminal invasion. Though it is not inevitable, it is more likely that here, rather than in places where people are confident they can regulate public behavior by informal controls, drug will, drugs will change hands, prostitutes will solicit, and cars will be stripped, muggings will occur." Unquote. By this reasoning, it is not just crime and the fear of crime that demand police attention, but the entire range of factors affecting the quality of life. Aside from its implicit class bias, the broken windows theory seems to assign inordinate importance to keeping one's lawn tidy. It seems frankly implausible that litter and abandoned cars lead to rape and murder in the vague but direct way Wilson and Kelling suggest. Moreover, the zero-tolerance conclusion does not necessarily follow from the broken windows premise. If panhandlers and dilapidated buildings serve as indicators of disorder, and thus promote crime, then public safety should be better advanced by the state's welfare functions rather than its policing functions, and there is no reason to subordinate the one to the other. Rather than investing resources in law enforcement, government funds would be better used to reduce poverty, provide housing, and help lower-income families to keep their homes, effort that do not require any involvement on the part of the police. But even if we accept the broken windows theory as Wilson and Kelling present it, there are still good reasons not to make the police responsible for the maintenance of order. For one thing, many aspects of order are not reflected in the law. Charging the police with maintaining order without the pretense of law comes uncomfortably close to outright bullying. Second, where order is distinct from law, it would seem to invest in the police the power to determine for themselves what counts as proper behavior. This is a dangerous enough precept to be avoided in its own right. Both of these worries can be somewhat alleviated if laws are changed to reflect the prevailing standards and to invest the police with order, maintenance, duty, de jure, as well as de facto. But this also should be resisted. First, it may raise troubling questions about the separation of powers, especially where the police themselves lobby for such laws. And more importantly, we should always hesitate to rely on the police to solve problems that can be addressed in other ways, or that we can stand to leave unresolved. There are political reasons for this position. In the interest of individual liberty, it is better not to expand police power or turn community problems into a source of police legitimacy. But there is also an underlying ethical principle that violence should be always and only a last resort. When we mark something, a behavior, a person, a hot spot location, as an object for police control, 
We also authorize an unknown level of violence to be applied to ensure compliance. The police represent, in Carl Klockkars' phrase, the state's non-negotiably coercive force. That is, ultimately, why they are there. A noisy drunk may be bothersome, to be sure. It is possible that, as so many business owners seem to believe, panhandlers keep patrons away. And a group of teenagers skulking on the street corner can make for an unnerving walk home. But few of us would feel justified using violence to address these difficulties, and neither should the police. But violence, or its threat, is implicit in every police interaction and manifests at times when it is undeniably inappropriate. To authorize police action is to authorize violence, to direct the police to act against such minor offenses, or non-offenses, as loitering or public drunkenness is to authorize violence in circumstances where very few people would consider it justified. The Future and Past of Public Order One precursor of the Broken Windows Doctrine was Oakland's Beat Health program. Under the auspices of Beat Health, police were encouraged to take an interest in the social environment where they patrolled, arranging for abandoned cars to be towed, litter picked up, graffiti scrubbed away. As in Santa Ana, the Oakland program had a close connection to the city's downtown renewal program. Local businesses funded the Oakland Police Department's 4th Platoon, which used foot patrols, bike patrols, horse patrols, motorcycle patrols, canine units, helicopters, and two special duty task forces to enforce public order laws in the downtown corridor. Police made use of a wide range of tactics, from gentle admonishments to open harassment, warrant checks, arrests, and violence. The NAACP reported a rise in police brutality as a result. Denver provides another early example of this philosophy in action. In, the 19, in 1980, the Denver police began deploying directed foot patrols, focusing on minor offenses in areas where young people gathered. The plan was quickly deemed a success and expanded to deal with homeless campers and panhandlers, especially in commercial areas. The foot patrols were supplemented with motorcycle patrols and dubbed escort, eliminate street crime on residential thoroughfares. Skolnick and Bailey enthusiastically report, quote, Escort officers are specialized in the enforcement of laws dealing with behavior in public places. One might call this skilled harassment. Working the streets busy hours 10 a.m. to 2 a.m. divided into two shifts, escort officers are told to find a rock and kick it. That means co combing the streets for minor violations by people who live persistently in the narrow space between respectability and criminality. These people are hit for any infraction that can be found, from rowdyism to the use of drugs, from propositioning to illegal parking, from procuring to causing a disturbance." Unquote. The zero-tolerance perspective came to inform not only the enforcement of the law, but the law itself. On July 1, 1983, the Denver city government made loitering illegal. Much of this pattern is familiar from the 19th century, when the newly formed police were immediately set to the job of keeping the urban poor in line. The bulk of police attention was not directed towards serious crime, but to vice and public order, which is a nice way of saying that they tried to control the morality, habits, and social life of the urban working classes. A similar task is implied by Wilson and Kelling's nostalgic reminiscences about the cop on the beat. Quote, the police in this earlier period assisted in that reassertion of authority by acting, sometimes violently, on behalf of the community. Young toughs were roughed up, people were arrested on suspicion or for vagrancy, and prostitutes and petty thieves were routed. Rights were something enjoyed by decent folk. Unquote. Historian Samuel Walker argues that Quote, the tradition of policing cited by Wilson and Kelling never existed, unquote. but that's not quite true. While unrecognizably distorted by Wilson and Kelling's rosy description, the 19th century did witness a very real increase in the demand for order, 
a demand met with police action. Pleasantries and circumlocutions aside, the tradition Wilson and Kelling seek to revive is not that of the station house soup kitchen, but that of the vagrancy law and the saloon raid. This is why Walker's protestation misses the point. The reactionary idealization of the past is a rhetorical device, not an historical hypothesis. It does not seek the truth about the past in order to learn the truth about the present. It tells lies about the past to support lies about the present. Thus, it makes little difference whether the 19th century cop was on better terms with the community or did a better job of maintaining order, so long as that faded Norman Rockwell image of the neighborhood cop can be used to justify repressive police tactics now. If the trick works, policing in the 21st century may resemble very closely that of the 19th. Inoculated City, the New New York Always proud to crystallize an emerging model, the New York Police Department provides the paradigm case of zero-tolerance policing. After Rudolph Giuliani's police-backed rise to the mayor's office, the former prosecutor immediately set about transforming the city according to his own view of public order. Within months, the crackdown had been directed against not only petty criminals, vagrants, and drunks, but peep shows, street vendors, and cabbies. The mastermind behind Giuliani's police state strategy was NYPD Commissioner William Bratton. Bratton, inspired by Wilson and Kelling's Broken Windows article, had previously dabbled with zero tolerance and quality of life measures in the subway system as the head of the transit police. The subway cops started using plainclothes officers to catch turnstile jumpers, put uniformed cops on the trains, and used the loudspeaker to announce periodic sweeps. These sweeps, codenamed Operation Glazier, were ostensibly to remove drunks, though the later use of police dogs indicates another purpose. Christian Parenti comments, quote, Such sweeps still in effect from time to time are simple political semaphore from the state to the people. We have the guns, we have the dogs, you will obey. Unquote. Other symbolism reinforced the message. Bratton issued the subway cops 9mm semi-automatic handguns and uniforms chosen for their military career. Quote, Commando sweaters with epaulets, very military. Unquote. Meanwhile, an extensive ad campaign reassured the public, We're taking the subway back, for you. As head of the NYPD, Bratton was able to experiment on a much broader scale. Seeing an intolerable array of disorder everywhere he looked, Bratton took his subway strategy to New York City's streets. Quote, quality of life, boomboxes, squeegee people, street prostitutes, reckless bicyclists, illegal after-hours joints, graffiti. New York was being overrun. We called police strategy number five, reclaiming the public spheres of New York. It was the linchpin strategy, unquote. The first casualties of Bratton's obsession with order were, as elsewhere, the homeless. Squeegee workers, in particular, suddenly found their efforts to eke out a living by washing windshields at intersections treated as the first priority of New York's finest. Police cleared squeegee corners every two hours and started making arrests rather than issuing citations. Soon the police were hard at work breaking up the homeless encampments under the city's bridges. Then they moved on to other sections of the population, truants, and then students, prostitutes and their clients, then workers and customers in the legal branch of the sex industry, squatters, bus drivers, and cabbies, and eventually jaywalkers. Almost immediately, complaints against the police began to rise. In 1994, 37% more complaints were filed than in the year before. By 1996, the police were receiving 56% more complaints than in 1993. Nevertheless, once New York was making headlines with its aggressive police tactics, Bratton's methods spread. Philadelphia cops started pursuing kids cutting class, handcuffing them like criminals. 
Boston police started cracking down on street merchants and beggars. A Washington, D.C. Metro police officer explained his department's zero-tolerance efforts. Quote, The administrators want to see numbers, so we're arresting people and locking them up for almost nothing. Unquote. Indianapolis instituted quality of life enforcement in 1997 with funds from the Federal Community Oriented Police Program. The Miami Police Department's focus on safe shopping led a half a dozen Miami cops to kick, pepper spray, and shackle Louis Rivera, a homeless man eating at a shopping mall. An hour later, Rivera was dead. Even Portland, Oregon has tried to become the New York, the new New York with a law against sitting on the sidewalk and neighborhood campaigns targeting churches that feed the homeless. Bratton himself has recently taken his considerable skills to the Los Angeles Police Department, where he began his term as police chief, with promises to target graffiti, begging, and gangs. Militarization in the Community Policing Context Given the popularity of the broken windows theory and the worldwide rush to imitate the New York police, we can begin to understand the use of paramilitary teams to conduct routine patrols. As a zero-tolerance tool, SWAT teams have a lot going for them. One officer explains, quote, We conduct a lot of saturation patrol. We focus on quality of life issues like illegal parking, loud music, bums, neighbor troubles. We have the freedom to stay in a hot area and clean it up, particularly gangs. Our tactical enforcement team works nicely with our department's emphasis on community policing." Unquote. While not exactly building community partnerships, these saturation patrols do represent an extreme form of the kind of proactive, preventative, geographically focused operations at the center of the community policing approach. Such uses of SWAT teams provide clear instance of the intersection between community policing and militarized tactics, equipment, ideology, and organizational structures. The connection is empirically indisputable. Many police departments esteemed for their community policing efforts use paramilitary units for patrols and other routine operations. Commanders have been known to move between community policing posts and paramilitary assignments, sometimes occupying both positions simultaneously and funds designated for community policing programs are frequently used to pay for SWAT operations. The use of SWAT teams for neighborhood patrols is striking, but it is not by any means the only point of contact between militarization and community policing. Between, beginning in 2001, the DC Metropolitan Police established links to hundreds of video cameras strategically positioned around the city. Adapted from military technology, the cameras continuously survey federal buildings and national monuments, public streets, subway and train stations, schools, and, thanks to the Business Association, stores in Georgetown. Heading the project is Stephen J. Gaffison, the former Justice Department Director of Community Policing Programs. He describes the system, quote, The video technology is state-of-the-art, fully computerized, switching equipment that is very similar to what you would find in a NASA or Defense Command center. I don't think there's really a limit on the feeds it can take. We're trying to build the capacity to tap into not only video, but databases and systems across the region." Unquote. DC's high-tech surveillance network, currently the most advanced in the country, is not intended to guard against normal street crime, but for use in emergencies to help route traffic and, tellingly, to monitor political demonstrations. Here, military technology and community policing leadership are combined for a project seemingly removed from crime control. Again, as with PPU patrols, the question is not whether there is a connection between community policing and militarization, but how to interpret this connection. 
Kraska and Kappler suggest that the demands of reformers help link community policing and militarization. Quote, Contemporary police reformers have asked the police to join together in problem-solving teams, to design ways to take control of the streets, to take ownership of the neighborhoods, to actively and visibly create a climate of order, and to improve communities' quality of life." Unquote. If we accept the idea of quality of life implicit in zero-tolerance police practices, then militarized policing does all of these things. What is more, efforts to do all of these may actually tend to promote militarization. Community policing is not a specific program, but a strategy. Militarization is as much about organization as it is about high-tech weaponry. It is possible that community policing and militarization can exist independently, but the two have a definite affinity. Strategies create demands on the organizations responsible for implementing them. Community policing is no exception. It requires, as we have seen, a decentralized command, officers working in teams, and highly discretionary police action. Decentralization and discretion may not sound like features of a military organization, but it is a mistake to contrast them with strict hierarchy and active discipline. Military discipline is not bureaucratic control. It is not meant to eliminate discretion, but to shape or guide it. Bureaucrats apply prescripted rules to a given situation, with a minimum of personal latitude. Soldiers are expected to follow orders, adhere to regulations, and act in accordance to military doctrine, but the application of these various codes must be determined to a very large extent on the ground by widely dispersed units acting with a minimum of direct supervision. Military discipline, therefore, builds in a degree of discretion. Quote, Sophisticated military managers increasingly prefer the initiative of the self-starter to the blind obedience of the automaton. Suspicious of excessive bureaucratic rigidity, they seek to cultivate in professional soldiers the disposition to act in conformity with the spirit of a command rather than formalistically with its letter. A felicitous way to do this is to formulate orders to junior officers and, where possible, to the troops themselves in terms of mission objectives." Unquote. Discipline is the internalized voice of authority. It is distinguished from rote obedience by the adoption of the values, aims, and methods of the institution. It requires obedience at a bare minimum and may be established and maintained in part through punishment. But a well-disciplined soldier, like a well-trained dog, will behave properly even when direct orders are unavailable and no punishment is threatened. Others from superior orders from superiors still supersede individual judgment, but fewer orders are necessary. By the same means, an organization can decentralize its command and maintain a rigid hierarchy with overall direction coming always from above. The NYPD command structure shows how these various organizational elements, decentralization, discretion, teamwork, discipline, can be meaningfully combined, while at the same time demonstrating how a militarized organization can pursue community policing strategies. As commissioner, Bratton streamlined the departmental bureaucracy and introduced a new management style. This worked in two directions. It returned much of the day-to-day -day control to the precinct level, but it also established performance evaluations and required precinct commanders to track weekly crime statistics. At the crux of the new system was a computerized method of analyzing crime statistics called CompStat. Twice a week, all the commanders would meet and review the situation in one precinct. This left each commander with enormous freedom to determine the day-to-day -day operations of his area. But every few weeks, the entire precinct's performance would be brought under close scrutiny, and the commander would have to answer some hard questions. 
quote, I want to know why these shootings are still happening in that housing project. What have we done to stop it? Did we put Crime Stoppers tips in every rec room in every apartment? Did we run a warrant check on every address at every project? And did we relentlessly pursue those individuals? What is our uniform deployment there? What are the hours of the day, the days of the week that we're deployed? Are we deployed in a radio car, on foot, on bicycle? Are they doing interior searches? Are they checking the rooftops? How do we know we're doing it? What level of supervision is there? When they're working together in a team with a sergeant and four cops, do they all go to a meal together? When they make an arrest, does everyone go back to the precinct or does one person go back? Are we giving desk appearance tickets to people who shouldn't be getting them? What are we doing with parole violators? Do we have the parole photos there to show? Do we know everybody on parole? Parolees are not allowed to hang out with other parolees. They're not allowed in bars. Of the 964 people on parole in the 75th precinct, do we know the different administrative restrictions on each one so when we interview them we can hold it over their heads? And if not, why not? Unquote. The grilling could be intense, and it put pressure on the precinct commanders to get results. This pressure then moved down the chain of command, affecting every level and every branch of the New York Police Department. Bratton describes the effect. Quote, we created a system in which the police commissioner, with his executive corps, first empowers and then interrogates the precinct commander, forcing him or her to come up with a plan to attack crime. But it should not stop there. At the next level down, it should be the precinct commander empowering and interrogating the platoon commander. Then at the third level, the platoon commander should be asking his sergeants, what are we doing to deploy on this tour to address these conditions? And finally, you have the sergeant at roll call. Mitchell, tell me about the last five robberies on your post. Carlisle, you think that's funny? It's a joke. Tell me about the last five burglaries. Bybert, tell me about those stolen cars on your post. All the way down until everyone in the entire organization is empowered and motivated, active and assessed, and successful. Unquote. This organizational structure demonstrates the possibility of combining tight command and control with individual discretion. CompStat allows the higher-level administrators to establish the organization's values and goals, precinct-level commanders set strategy for their areas, and street-level officers have the discretion to adopt the particular tactics they think suitable. Information moves up and down the chain of command, decision-making is consistently deferred to lower levels, and power is concentrated at the top. In this sense, CompStat has as much to do with militarization as does SWAT. This analysis goes some way toward resolving the apparent tensions between community policing and militarization, but a puzzle remains. Remember that the theorist advocates commonly claim that community policing requires, or at least promotes, civilianization. If anything undermines the coherence of militarized community policing, surely this does. But what does civilianization mean? Civilianization refers to the use of civilians to perform police department functions that don't require the authority of sworn officers. These tasks can range from clerical work and communications to training and forensic analysis to equipment maintenance and, in extreme cases, taking reports and performing minor investigations. Quote, an assumption behind all of this, of course, is that civilians do not supplant sworn officers. Civilianization in Houston, for example, was de designed in part to put more uniforms on the street." Unquote. In other words, when a department is civilianized, the actual number of armed uniformed officers available for duty increases. Thus, civilianization is not in any sense incompatible with militarization. To sum up, community policing as a strategy of social control stresses proactive efforts to create order and focuses on problem solving, broadly construed. 
This emphasis can come to justify zero-tolerance policing efforts, and specifically the use of paramilitary units for routine police work. The degree to which SWAT teams and community policing campaigns have come to share personnel and funding demonstrates the close linkage between the two. Furthermore, the type of organization, discipline, teamwork, officer discretion, and even civilization, civilianization suggested by community policing all tend toward a military model. All of this indicates that community policing is not only compatible with, but may actually promote militarization. On the broader view, when we look at police action both in terms of its strategic and organizational aspects, the picture emerging is that of a Kitsonian counterinsurgency program. Community policing plus militarization equals counterinsurgency. The ability to concentrate power in the event of an emergency, e.g. a riot, has been shown to require a shift toward military operations, but the ability to penetrate communities is enhanced if the police have the consent or acquiescence of those communities. This requires legitimacy and a softer service-oriented or Peace Corps approach. Complicated things, complicating things further, military organization requires a strict, almost automatic, discipline and tight command and control. Community policing requires discretion, localized decision-making, and a great deal of organizational flexibility. But the two aspects achieve strategic coherence when viewed in the framework of counterinsurgency. Drawing from the work of British military strategist Frank Kitson, modern counterinsurgency stresses the need to prevent disorder rather than simply repressing it where it occurs. This aim requires that the authorities make nice with the local populace, creating in the community a sense that their rule is stable and legitimate. But it also requires heavy intelligence about the condition of the community, the sources of conflict, grievances, prevalent attitudes, and the efforts of troublemakers. To both these ends, counterinsurgency theorists encourage the authorities to actively penetrate the local community. Community penetration allows for ready access to intelligence, lets the state present itself as a benevolent problem solver, and more subtly gives it the means to co-opt community institutions that might otherwise provide a base for resistance. All of this can be recognized in the community policing agenda. The neighborhood watch structure specifically mirrors counterinsurgency efforts. Kitson writes, quote, The following procedure used by the French army in Algiers, the policeman or soldier in charge of each strong point strategic area, might then appoint one local inhabitant to be responsible for each street, who would be instructed to appoint an individual to be responsible for each block, and so on, down to one individual responsible for each family. The avowed reason for doing this would be to facilitate requests by the people themselves for help, unquote. A December 2002 article in the Portland Tribune demonstrates the utility of such a system. A front-page photograph shows ten cops in helmets, bulletproof vests, combat boots, and blue fatigues aiming pistols and assault rifles at a suspect's house. The cops in the picture were members of the Northeast Precinct Senior Neighborhood Officer Unit, a team that focuses on quality-of-life issues. The raid was authorized by a warrant based on six months of intensive surveillance. Surveillance conducted not by police, but by neighbors who kept logs recording the traffic in and out of the house, disputes among tenants, and any suspicious behavior. Police Chief Mark Croker identified the effort as a central aspect of Portland's community policing strategy. Quote, We have a police bureau that is understaffed, underfunded, and overwhelmed, but we have a community that is willing to work, willing to help. Unquote. Community policing turns the citizenry into the eyes and ears of the state, and by the same means creates a demand for more aggressive tactics. 
This is where street sweeps, roadblocks, saturation patrols, zero tolerance campaigns, and paramilitary units come into the picture. SWAT, in particular, was created as part of a counterinsurgency plan, a fact of which Daryl Gates is quite proud. Quote, We began reading everything we could get our hands on concerning guerrilla warfare. We watched with interest what was happening in Vietnam. We looked at military training, and in particular we studied what a group of Marines based at the Naval Armory in Chavez Ravine were doing. They shared with us their knowledge of counterinsurgency and guerrilla warfare. Unquote. Of course, many, many community policing advocates fail to recognize the symbiotic relationship between the soft and the tough approaches. Goldstein, for example, cautions that, quote, a department could not long tolerate a situation in which officers in a residential area go out of their way to demonstrate that they are caring, service-oriented individuals, while other officers assigned to a roving task force make wholesale sweeps of loitering juveniles in that community, unquote. Goldstein is simply wrong. Recent studies of SWAT activity show that departments can tolerate the juxtaposition between outreach and smackdown. In fact, some departments deliberately choose this good cop, bad cop strategy. Community policing operations can legitimate such sweeps by mobilizing conservative elements of the community, especially businesses and property owners. One LAPD officer describes the role of community support. Quote, when the community cooperates and tells you who has been doing things, why they've been doing them, and how long they've been doing them, you jump at the chance to get some the sons of bitches. The community doesn't help that much, so you gotta take what you can get while you can get it. Because the community can change its mind, so you gotta act quickly and decisively or else you'll lose the opportunity. That's why when we know the community is behind us, we're gonna be aggressive, break their asses, and put their butts in jail." Unquote. Or beginning at the other pole, an initial crackdown can repress active opposition, opening the political space for Peace Corps-type efforts and outreach to responsible community leaders. In military terms, the sweeps work to secure territory, and community organizing efforts constitute a battle for the hearts and minds of the populace. If this description sounds exaggerated, we should consider New York Police Department Deputy Commissioner Jack Maple's plans for Operation Juggernaut. Quote, We'll take the city back borough by borough. You go into Queens. You stay there for six months with 800 officers. There's some bad areas, the 103, the 110, the 113, and the 114 precincts. You do everything that works. Buy and bust operations, quality of life enforcement, warrants, guns, the whole thing. It works. We know it works. We do our job and take out the drug organizations and clean up Queens. Now we have it under control. After six months, you downgrade by about 20%. You leave 600 officers in Queens as a standing army and slide 200 over to Brooklyn North, plus another 700. We give Brooklyn North the same treatment over four months, leave several hundred there, and slide to the rest of Brooklyn South and then Staten Island. When we've cleaned up there, we'll leave some and move to the Bronx. We finish with Manhattan. Within a year, we kill crime in New York." Unquote. Likewise, the chief of police in one identified, unidentified city described the role of paramilitary units in his community policing strategy. Quote, It's going to come to the point that the only people that are going to be able to deal with these problems are highly trained tactical teams with proper equipment to go into a neighborhood and clear the neighborhood and hold it, allowing community policing officers to come in and start turning the neighborhoods around. Unquote. This is a direct adaptation of military thinking intended to address the shortcomings of the traditional law enforcement approach. Former Army Intelligence Officer Thomas Marks explains, quote, 
Police are relatively ineffective in dealing with hard-hit areas, of course, because they violate the most elementary rules of counterinsurgency. They do not systematically seize and clear areas, leaving behind militia. Rather, they chase the guerrilla main forces over hill and dale." Unquote. Since the early 1990s, the police have been actively trying to correct for this tendency. What we're seeing as a result is neighborhood safety transformed in the image of national security. Understood in terms of counterinsurgency, community policing represents an approach to establishing and maintaining police control over the community, an approach enhanced by the insights of military experiences in restless colonies. Organizationally, militarization provides the model by which the police can work in teams, enhance officer discretion, and maintain tight command and control. Community policing efforts, meanwhile, create the infrastructure for intelligence gathering and co-optation. Strategically, community policing strives toward directed, proactive action with a geographic focus and attention to the causes of disorder. Military planning gives a central role to intelligence work and takes an aggressive approach to confronting the enemy. Hence, military tactics are used to clear and hold contested areas, while community policing programs seek to create partnerships that bring the police legitimacy, information, and access to community resources. Ideologically, community policing serves to legitimate military-type efforts, while the rhetoric of a war on crime can be used to mobilize the community to aid the police. And of course, the threats of a militarized bad cop encourage cooperation with the good cops' community policing projects. Meet the new cop, same as the old cop. Modern policing has a dual nature, going back to its origins. The twin developments of community policing and militarization are an extension of the initial advances of policing identified by Alvin Silver. One, widespread surveillance and discretionary action penetrating the community. And two, the capacity for rapid concentration and swift forceful action. The state has sought to develop its potential in each of these directions while maintaining a single organization responsible for enforcement. The form of discretionary action has changed from foot patrols to vehicle patrols to a combination of the two. And thanks to technological advances and organizational innovations, the rapid concentration of police, once reserved for emergencies, is becoming a standard response to crime and disorder. The discrete and discretionary aspects are likewise available for increasing coordination. All the while, the penetration of the community increases, not only through patrol and surveillance, but also by the co-optation of community institutions. These developments are, in one sense, quite new but they come as the latest thing in a long series of institutional shifts and political realignments, the most significant of which I have traced out in the chapters preceding. Our story so far has followed two related threads. The first is the institutional development of the police, from informal system to formal, from the militia-based slave patrols to prototype city guards to modern municipal departments. The modern departments themselves began as the strong arms of corrupt political machines, then developed through the processes of bureaucratization and professionalization, only to be reshaped by the internal crisis surrounding unionization and its collusive, if uneasy, resolution. The second narrative concerns the relationship of this institution to the rest of society, roughly divided between elites, capitalists, landlords, politicians, bureaucrats, and the masses, the rest of us. The first story is characterized by a continually increasing measure of autonomy, the second by the institution's service to elites at the expense of the masses. I have suggested that the increased autonomy has been traded for loyalty to the elites. 
and is consistently used to further their interests. The current era of policing began in response to the social conflict of the 1960s. As a result of that period's turmoil, policing underwent a change that drew together the two historical currents. The police became fully a political power unto themselves. They could not govern independently, no single body in our society can, but they suddenly came into their own as a center of power. This was the logical result of the long progression toward institutional autonomy, but it emerged as an unexpected consequence of the internal conflict between rank-and-file officers and their commanders. When the rank-and-file rebelled and began exerting influence of their own, this naturally shifted the balance of power within the institution. As it happened, the change was beneficial to both parties. By redistributing power downward, the institution was able to seize for itself an additional measure of autonomy and the police achieved a sense of having political as well as occupational interests in common. The emergence of the police as a political force changed the institution's relationship to social and political elites. No longer simply the servants of the ruling class, the cops became an interest group for whose loyalty the elites had to bargain. Rather than merely acting as agents of the most powerful faction, police leaders, both administrators and union representatives, became power brokers themselves, capable of entering into or withdrawing from alliances with other powerful social actors. In a related way, the relationship with the masses also changed. Rather than simply appealing to the silent majority or relying on the John Birch Society to organize support your local police campaigns, police began organizing their own political efforts and developing their own constituency. Part of this happened through the police union, political action committees, and grassroots support for tough-on-crimes or victims' rights lobbying. Part of it happened through the departments themselves under the rubric of community policing. At the same time, police departments were taking on the organizational form, tactics, weaponry, and ideology of the military, and modeling their operations after counterinsurgency programs. This complex set of developments sometimes creates paradoxes and strategic ambiguities, but each aspect of it moves along the same trajectory. Police power is increased, and democracy suffers a proportional loss. And that's the end of chapter 9.